Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Drs. James L. Gibson and Michael J. Nelson to discuss their new book, Judging Inequality, State Supreme Courts and the Inequality Crisis, published by Russell Sage Foundation in 2021. Soaring levels of political, legal, economic, and social inequality have been documented by social scientists, but the public conversation and scholarship on inequality has not examined the role of state law and state courts in establishing policies that significantly affect inequality. Gibson and Nelson analyzed their original database of nearly 6,000 decisions made by over 900 judges on 50 state Supreme Courts over a quarter century to demonstrate how state high courts craft policy. The 50 state Supreme Courts shape American inequality in two ways, through substantive policy decisions that fail to advance equality, and by rulings favoring more privileged litigants typically known as upper dogs. The book focuses on court-made public policy on issues including educational equity and adequacy, LGBTQ rights, and workers' rights. The conventional wisdom assumes that courts protect underdogs from majorities, but Gibson and Nelson demonstrate that judges most often favor dominant political elites and coalitions, as such courts are unlikely to serve as an independent force against the rise of inequality in the United States. Dr. James Gibson is Sidney W. Sowers Professor of Government at Washington University in St. Louis. His research interests are in law and politics, comparative politics, and American politics. Dr. Michael J. Nelson is a professor of political science at Penn State University. He studies judicial politics and U.S. state policies. Uh, politics, especially public attitudes towards law and courts, judicial behavior, and the politics of court reform. Michael was a recent guest on the New Books Network for The Elevator Effect, a book he co-wrote with Morgan Hazelton and Rachel Hinkle in 2023. I'm delighted to welcome both of you to the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having us. Happy to be uh, here. This book Thank has you. an incredible origin story, uh, and you have a really generous narrative of how it is that you built this book uh, on the works of others and through the support of many institutions and the comments and feedback that you received from colleagues at conferences, through uh, your institutions, et cetera. It really is an excellent example for those people who are putting together acknowledgments or will for a dissertation or a book. It's really an example of how to be generous and how to think broadly about how books come into this world. So James, would you start us off with how did this book come to light? How did the two of you get together to write this? So perhaps I should start with the background to the book. Uh, And the background really is school finance litigation. And by that, I mean litigation on school inequality in the United States, inequality in the sense of funding and resources for public schools in the American states. Uh, That's a literature that's been around for a while, um, but we saw in that literature Uh, an opportunity to think about inequality beyond just school systems, uh, 
and in particular the role of uh, courts in um, in the maintenance or uh, the reduction of the inequality. And then along came a couple of uh, people who really inspired us to mobilize on the project. Um, I'll mention, for instance, Helen Hirschkoff. Uh, Professor Hirschkoff is a law professor in New York, and she wrote an an extensive law review article uh, discussing all the different kinds of decisions that courts make that affect inequality. That really opened our eyes and made us realize that school inequality was only the uh, tip of the uh, iceberg. Um, Maybe the most important influence is Marty Gillens and uh, Ben Page. Uh, Marty Gillens wrote a book called Affluence and Influence um, about a decade ago or so, and he documented uh, the ways in which inequality in the United States get connected to public opinion and in particular to the preferences of elites. Just an amazing book. And then Marty and uh, Ben Page uh, presented a paper at the American Political Science Association in which they um, talked about the need for greater equality to solve many of the problems in the United States. So with that sort of background, uh, we decided that it was uh, worthwhile to, um, to really move beyond what any of, any of these authors had ever done, and that is to create a rigorous, large, systematic database on all the rulings of the state Supreme Courts pertinent to inequality over the period 1990 to uh, 2015. And it took forever. Um, I, I think, you know, one, one thing, we started this project when I was a graduate student. The, the first grant proposal for this went in after I had accepted the job at Penn State, but before I had defended the, the dissertation. And thanks to the National Science Foundation and the Russell Sage Foundation, and dozens of law student RAs and graduate student RAs and undergraduate RAs, we were able to collect all of this data. Um, We actually wrote a different book to procrastinate writing this book uh, because it was taking so long. Uh, But once we had all the data, it was was so fun to to go through and, and analyze. And Michael, let me talk to you about the data, because the, the data is almost like a character in the evolution of the book. Uh, you have a really profound section in the introduction about data transparency and also uh, how federalism, 50 different data collection approaches, really get in the way of scholarship that is comparative in the way that you're hoping to 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 be in this book. So tell me about what existed. Tell me about what you had to put together. And I also want to note again, for everybody who does this kind of work, uh, James and Michael actually list the names of the people who did this collection. They're very, very gracious, not just about thinking about the big theoretical uh, scholars who came before them, but also the people who 
who churned away to create this kind of database that you could then use to analyze. And it's, it's beautiful. It's not always done in the introduction. So I, I, I applaud this. Uh, so Michael, what, 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 what was there and, and why is it so hard to do this kind of work as somebody who focuses on state politics? Yeah, we were really naive. Um, you know, so, so, so Jim talked about school finance cases and, you know, Lexis is a, is a database of, all the, the judicial opinions. And we thought that it would be relatively straightforward to, you know, pick some issue areas, download the, the cases in those issue areas, and then get information about what judges uh, decided those cases. But it turns out that some of the states don't even list in the opinions the name of the judges who heard the case. Uh, and so there began... Uh, a journey, and and we were so lucky to get data from Matt Hall and Jason Wendet, from Greg Goldhauser, um, other people who have studied state courts, so that we could both compare our data against and also use to augment our data. Um, and so we we were really struck by even basic biographical information about our about the judges. Um, you know, some states have websites that have full biographies of uh, all of their justices going back to statehood and others, you can barely find out the names of the people who are currently serving. Uh, did you have information on whether they were Federalist Society? Is that something that was part of the database as well? So we tried, we collected a much broader set of information than we analyzed in the book. And the the affiliation of judges in those groups was something that we, at the end of the day, weren't confident enough that we had systematic data, um, particularly for the earlier judges. Um, you know, 1990 doesn't seem like it was that long ago to us, but pre-internet, it's like trying to figure out who, yeah, it, it was really tough. Uh, James, did you want to add anything on the the data, and and then let's let's talk about the questions that you were trying to answer, um, and 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 where you went from there. Um, you know, on this project, we really were inspired by the prior work of Melinda Gann Hall, a political scientist at Michigan State, and Paul Brace, a political scientist at Rice both of whom were just instrumental in opening up studies to these highly important but largely ignored uh, judicial institutions. Uh, Hall and Brace, and I think Michael will agree with this, but Hall and Brace were really the pioneers that um, set the stage for our book, but for every scholar who's uh, paid attention to uh, these institutions. Um, we often talk about the 6,000 cases, and that was a Herculean job of uh, collecting the data and doing the analysis. But it's 6,000 uh, 6, cases decided by 1,000 judges over about 15 or 16 years in institutions that have changing characteristics 
and in the context of state governments that are changing as well. So the data are not just the story of cases, they're the story of judges, courts, state governments, and public opinion over this fairly uh, lengthy period of time. Um, I say that a little bit as a means of defending the amount of time it took us to complete the book, because it did take us a while to complete the book. Well, this is the one place you don't have to do that kind of defense, James, because really the story of most people who come on the program is that these were ideas that they had and it took longer than they thought and and sources of data that they really hadn't imagined that they would need or that they thought, as you did, would probably be there already, um, you know, just, just ready to sort of find. Um, we mentioned this in the opening, and you've both alluded to it, that, that we have in political science this sort of uh, uh, best case scenario that courts are the defenders of um, minority groups. And we often turn to a case like Brown versus Board of Education and sort of see Supreme Court justices, for example, upholding you know, the, the rights of of a, a racial minority against a majority that would prefer there to be racial segregation. And that this is the sort of paradigmatic case and this is this is what courts do. But your book is really a myth-busting book because you you it's not that you deny that Brown or courts can ever matter. It's that you want to focus us on the ways in which they don't actually um, behave in this way. So let, let's talk just a little bit more, flesh it out about what, what, what is the role of state Supreme Courts in, in these public policies that are affecting inequality at, at all of these levels, political, legal, social, economic. Michael, I think, go ahead. The, the, I think the big story of the book is that these institutions are far more important and far more powerful than most people give them credit for. Um, we talk in the book about Karl Rove, who you know uh, some people remember from the, the George W. Bush administration, but, but long before that, he was active in politics in the South, and he realized that most important issues eventually find their way into state Supreme Courts, and most of these state Supreme Courts only have five or seven judges on them. And so if you're thinking, because many of these judges are elected, about trying to get a chamber to swing in a way that, that is in alignment with your partisan goals, it's way cheaper to try to flip two state Supreme Court races that nobody's paying attention to than to try to flip half the Alabama legislature. And so starting in the late 80s, he worked in Alabama and in Texas to try to change the, the partisan uh, makeup of those institutions. And I think the big story of the book is that it worked, um, that these, these courts, just like the U.S. Supreme Court, tend to make decisions that uh, oftentimes follow the ideological proclivities of their judges. And that means that it's very easy for the dominant political regime in control of a state to get control of the state Supreme Court in ways that help them protect the policies that they're passing. James, do you want to add to that? Yeah. I'd like to return just a little bit to the question of democratic theory. Uh, 
Michael and I are political scientists, so we could talk for hours about the meaning of democracy. But a simple formulation is that democracy is a system of majority rule with institutions that protect the rights of the minority. Uh, with courts obviously uh, assigned the latter job of protecting minorities. I'd like to also return to school finance um, and to Kansas in particular. I guess everything starts with Kansas at some point, but uh, in Kansas, a dispute over school finance evolved and lasted for a decade or more. And it was a dispute in which the state Supreme Court was forcing equality on the Kansas government, much to the chagrin of the governor and of the legislature. So Kansas was sort of the model that we thought would uh, prevail in the entire 50 states. And by that, I mean that the majority is going to be abusive from time to time of the rights of poor people, the rights of minorities of various types, and who steps in? Well, the courts step in, Brown versus Board of Education in the federal case and many other instances. So that was the model that we expected to find in the courts, uh, in the American states, the courts of the American states. And as Michael just pointed out, our findings couldn't be further away from those expectations. Well, let's talk more about the findings. So, uh, yes, the the theory is that we're not a majoritarian democracy. Since I'm the political theorist in the room, right? It's a we're a liberal democracy, small L, small D. That means that we're looking at rights, whether or not majorities are willing to, in fact, support them, and the judges are supposed to step in in those moments. We know how it's supposed to work. Your, uh, you, you know, your 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 survey of all of this data shows that in fact the the haves seem to come out ahead in certain particular ways. So let's let's talk about it. And you can use any of the uh, cases. I mean, the book is. I just want to say right now, the book is in really readable. Okay, this is readable for scholars and uh, it's readable for uh, undergraduates as well. This is this is not a book that uses language that will be alienating, and any reader really can get through it and and I think get a lot out of it. But so referring to whichever of the cases you want and whichever uh, uh, data help you, who comes out ahead? How does this how does this work? I, it, it, it is certainly not the case that, that these courts are, are standing as, as bulwarks against rising inequality. We find that about half of the cases were decided uh, in favor of greater equality, half the other way. And similarly, looking at litigants, about half were in favor of the litigant that had more power, the, the big business or the the organization against the individual person. Um, and this, this holds across, you know, uh, gay rights cases, across uh, employment law cases. Um, and so this, this idea that, that courts are going to come in and help the little guy stand up to the big guy is, is certainly not the case. And especially not the case when courts are dominated 
by conservative judges. James, uh, flesh that out a little bit. And also, uh, is there any variation in the 50 states? I mean, I, I, I understand that you're not seeing what you expected, but is it the case that all 50 behave this way? Or are there states in which the high courts, state high courts are in fact supporting inequality or making policy that uh, does uh, protect minorities within the state? Um, I'll give a two-part answer to that question, touching first on this question of underdogs and upper dogs. The conventional wisdom in uh, studies of courts um, is that upper dogs win and that they're a conservative interest because upper dogs are inevitably conservative. Uh, this is a theory first put forth by Mark Galanter, one of the really preeminent uh, legal sociologists of our generations, and it spawned a ton of research uh, focusing on upper dogs and underdogs. So we were uh, tested the expectation that inequality was being enhanced by the power of these upper dogs. Well, we found that that wasn't necessarily the case because we found that upper dogs were often litigating in favor of equality, in favor of equality, quite in contrast to a vast body of literature finding quite the opposite. And so, uh, therefore, uh, attorneys general, for instance, which would be defined as an upper dog, attorneys general uh, would often uh, uh, litigate for the rights of poor people or for the rights of, of voters and so on. So um, upper dogs are not inevitably uh, majoritarian or conservative. They're not inevitably anything. Now, the second and consequential part of my answer is that's part of the reasons why the states vary so much. Uh, I can give an easy example, again, turning to the attorneys general. Uh, the attorneys general, and by which I mean a coalition of the attorney generals in each of the states, will often band together in support of very conservative uh, litigation goals, but they'll often also band together, different portions will band together in pursuit of very liberal goals. So this shows, in my mind, the connection between the judiciary and the executive branch in this instance, by which I mean that uh, a liberal attorneys general will fight for uh, liberal justices on their courts and will pursue liberal goals, and exactly the opposite for conservatives. Um, Michael is so right about Texas, and maybe he wants to say, and Carl Rove, Texas and Alabama. Those were states that, that were very liberal in their Supreme Courts in the 1980s, and the Republicans made a concerted effort to change them, and they succeeded in doing so. The point is, though, the political forces try to 
control and succeed at controlling these incredibly important legal institutions. And Please, I think Michael. Yeah. If I can follow up, because I think you know it's it's so easy to to talk about the book and and the the data in the book and in in 2015, but what we're living through right now um, in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision is the the conclusions of this book coming to life where you now have abortion cases resulting from state laws either expanding or contracting access to abortion filtering up to these state supreme courts that have the power to interpret their own state constitutions in ways that the US Supreme Court can't touch and so you know, if, if I'm a conservative state legislator in a state and I want to restrict access to abortion, the, the number one thing that I need to do is to make sure that my state Supreme Court is going to uphold that law. And vice versa, if I'm, if I'm someone that wants to expand abortion access in my state, I know that any uh, law expanding abortion access that we pass is going to make it to that state Supreme Court. And I want justices on that court who are going to say, you know, the Supreme Court says that the U.S. Constitution doesn't protect a right to abortion. But here in Iowa or here in Pennsylvania, we have uh, a Pennsylvania Constitution and that equal protection clause of the Pennsylvania Constitution protects abortion. And I just want to note that, uh, first of all, that is what uh, drew me to do this book at this time. And also, uh, you know, we are uh, meeting to to discuss this just days after the uh, Pennsylvania state court states did in fact issue a ruling based on the constitution of Pennsylvania with regard to abortion that is monumental. And also, and this is after you published the book, the Wisconsin gerrymander is part of what was driving the politics of election justice, a ju one judge in Wisconsin, which would make the difference. And the judge ran quite openly on the fact that I, I am running to vote in this particular way. So it's, it's a, it's a, this, your book is, is extremely relevant for our particular moment. It, it's relevant all the time, which is kind of the point that you're making in the book, but it is particularly relevant as we're sitting in the United States in, in 2024. Okay, uh, James, I want to go to you. And then I also want to talk, and you can segue from what you want to say into this, to talk a little bit more about the backgrounds and ideologies of these justices, the institutions, and, and have this capture process that you've been alluding to, but that I don't think we've gotten out completely for those who haven't read the book. So please, James. Uh, Susan, I just want to take a second without becoming too technical to emphasize for uh, your listeners uh, the importance of these courts. So the U.S. Constitution has a clause preventing, prohibiting cruel and unusual punishment. The U.S. Supreme Court is the final arbiter of that clause, and they have said that the death penalty is not cruel and unusual. However, California has the same provisions prohibiting cruel and unusual. The California Supreme Court interpreting those words in California say that the death penalty is cruel. Now, I just want folks to understand 
the importance of state law and state constitutions. And in particular, something that Michael just said, these courts can make law for the people of the state without review by the U.S. Supreme Court, without review by any federal court. They're the final arbiters of almost all law as it exists in the United States today. And I think that, uh, you know, in other, other books that we've done on this show, you know, talk about the, the ways in which what is reported can leave people with the false impression that three blockbuster cases are what affect Americans in terms of policy. Sometimes that can be true. Dobbs did affect the um, abortion laws for many people in the United States because it shifted from federal to state, because the laws that were in place that from the 19th century in Wisconsin had no relevance as long as Roe v. Wade was in place. So the removal of that, or the in the case of Bruin, in the case of overturning um, gun restrictions that have been in place for 100 years in places like New York, also pushes it back down to the states. It is possible for the Supreme Court to stop a state like New York from doing what it wants with guns. That's true. But it, as you said, it, there are many ways in which states can, in fact, make policy. And this is what mostly does affect Americans. So uh, thanks, James, for, for underlining that. Underlining that. Um, let's talk a little bit about how you see the, this politics that we're not paying a lot of attention to. D- describe it a little bit in, in more detail, in particular, this idea of, of capture and how it is that the courts in these states elected by majorities of people still are not necessarily responding to what those majorities want. Sure. So the judges in, in most states have to stand for some sort of election in order to keep their job. And we call those retention mechanisms. And in many states, judges are also supposed to have to be elected in order to to get their jobs. And we say those are selection methods. What we found in the book is that oftentimes, through the practicalities of retirement, unexpected death, people leave in the middle of their terms. And running elections are expensive. And so states have let, instead of filling a vacancy by holding an election in in the middle of the summer, a governor appoints somebody. And in many of these states that supposedly select judges through election, what's actually happening is that most, if not all of their judges, were actually initially appointed by the governor. And so through this use of interim appointment rules, governors or legislators have much stronger sway than we might expect over who sits on these courts. Because if I was initially appointed by the governor to a judgeship, then later that year when I run for re-election, I'm running for re-election. I'm an incumbent. Uh, I'm going to have access to donor networks to to raise money. And so in this way, we say that it's, it's possible for governors or legislators to capture these courts Uh, because so many people are actually appointed 
even when supposedly they're elected. What, um, go ahead, James. Yeah, please. Yeah, um, I'll take a step backwards. I, of course, agree with everything Michael just said, but I'll take a step backwards. Um, I'll put forth the radical premise that governors are not stupid. And what I mean by that is that every governor who has served in the last hundred years realizes how important these courts are. Scholars may not have realized it, pundits may not have realized it, but executives and legislatures know full well, and uh, I bet you a nickel that every single one can recite the history of the Kansas a school finance uh, debacle over the course of a decade. And so what Michael just said is that um, executives and legislatures will manipulate the rules in every way that they can to ensure that the judges on the court are like-minded. The judges on the court share their ideologies and their philosophies. Uh, and they do so through various uh, uh, different mechanisms. But the point is, they know they're important. They exert effort to capture these institutions. And in most instances, they're successful at doing so. And therefore, judicial independence is something of a myth in most states in the United States. Uh, when I was an intern in Mario Cuomo's office, uh, one of the things I remembered from my time there was the appointment of Judith Kay, who was the first woman appointed to uh, the highest court in, in New York State. And it was, you know, it was, it, it, I, I had, I had, it had to be explained to me, you know, I was a college student, but, um, uh, the impact that she had, the impact that many of the judge, judges have, is is phenomenal and and incredibly important. And again, it's not it's not part of our civics narrative. It's not part of the narrative, but it is part of the politics, and it is part of what people have been paying attention to. Go ahead, James. Pick that up from there. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm following up on your point. I've mentioned Kansas several times, but the people of New Jersey know exactly what you're talking about and what we're talking about. And what I mean by that is the New Jersey Supreme Court decades ago ruled in favor of uh, school financing equality and tried to force the New Jersey gover government to raise taxes so as to pay for the school systems that were underfunded. Now, uh, I, I mentioned Kansas, but I think New Jersey actually came first. But this is an example of the real world consequences of these courts. This is an example of a pro-equality intervention. Uh, there are many other examples of anti-equality interventions. But the bottom line is these courts matter, and they matter for people like you and I and for people on the streets of these various states. And one of the last chapters, which is called, you know, when do courts advance equality, you know, really tries to flesh this out, that this isn't just courts, um, you know, 
holding for the upper dogs, it 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 can actually be about them advancing. And do you want to do you want to say more about the conditions on that tend to lead to those courts advancing equality? Yeah, I think two things can come to mind as particularly important. The the first is public opinion. And here I want to maybe moderate the last answer that I said when I was talking about court capture, because these governors or these legislators that are appointing judges were also elected by the people. And so it's not necessarily the case that these courts have have attitudes that are crazily out of line with, with their constituents, but what they do tend to have are much longer terms. And so we talk in the book uh, about what we call a hangover effect uh, in, in the alcohol-infused sense of the term, where you know some of these courts have judges who've been on the, on the bench for 20 years. The politics of the state have shifted, but that judge's uh, value system has not. So one thing that we find is that uh, you know, public opinion has a really important role to play here. And that role of public opinion is moderated through the use of different retention mechanisms. So whether judges have to be reappointed, whether they have to be reelected, and what sort of elections they have to to stand for. And, and, and what's there's... so fascinating there about the the you know how democratic is something and this idea that well the governor was elected by the people is that at at the moment that we're talking in the United States, part of the problem, not in all states, but in some, is the fact that legislatures are so uh, heavily gerrymandered that, in fact, the will of the people is not necessarily represented in the legislature because the legislatures themselves have carved the people up into districts that will lead to lopsided effects. So a state like Wisconsin, for example, that's roughly 50-50, has a more of a 70-30 Republican to Democrat. That That is not possible in a governor's race where everyone in the state is voting and the districts don't matter. So it's interesting that if the governor is appointing, that will at least bring it a little bit closer to the people. But I loved the part in the book, and I thought Hangover Effect was a great name for it, that tries to show that despite that, there still is this longevity that just judges have that is different because of the length of of their terms. James, you wanted to get in on something earlier. Yeah, it's on this point. Um, One of the advantages of judicial elections, which, of course, are widely criticized by almost everyone except Michael and me, one of the advantages of judicial elections is that hangover seems to uh, occur less frequently. And what I mean by that is when public opinion changes in a state and therefore the state government changes in the state, that same public opinion causes changes in the Supreme Court. So there's maybe not in any given year, but over a relatively short period of time, there's a three, there can be a three branch realignment. Public opinion changes, the legislature changes, the governor changes, and then the court changes. Now, from the point of view of accountability, from the point of view of majority rule, uh, that's 
probably desirable. Uh, we're heading into a period in American history where the U.S. Supreme Court might become a hangover court for a good number of years in the future, and that could have very serious consequences for American politics. The only point I want to make, however, and emphasize again, is that elections are a mechanism of updating institutions, and where judges are elected, they too get updated. And that's part of this process. We call it capture, but in that sense, it's not necessarily an active capturing but sort of a natural consequences, natural consequence of change in public opinion. If if you were, um, if you could, this is kind of a magic wand type question. But what when after having done all of this work, what do you want scholars, public officials, and voters to do? What do you want scholars to do in terms of how they ask and answer these questions? Uh, what, what, what could public officials do better? And what could the people who actually vote in these elections do better based on, on the work that you've done? So I have two answers. Um, the first, to academics, I think that we should stop teaching Brown so much. Um, I think that so much of the problems that we have about how we think about courts come from the fact that the one court case that if you, if you know nothing else about the U.S. Supreme Court, you know that they did this one thing that they very rarely do. And I think if, if we as teachers do a better job of contextualizing both the U.S. Supreme Court, but also these, these state Supreme Court's output um, and, and don't kind of lead every discussion of the U.S. Supreme Court with Brown which, you know, I, I teach intro to American politics. I'm as guilty as anybody else. But I think the, the overemphasis on Brown does more harm than good. And the second, kind of with regard to these state Supreme Courts, it's to, to make people follow them. Know that you have a state Supreme Court and know that these judicial elections are incredibly important. You know, Issues like education law and family law that affect every person are decided by state Supreme Courts. You know, divorce law, which is an area of law that lots of people have firsthand information with. You know, if, if you get divorced in most states, that divorce is going to be adjudicated by an elected judge. And, you know, encouraging good people to run for judge is, is important. Um, but also making sure that people show up to vote in these judicial elections uh, is is really, really important. The, um, I'm going to give a small answer and then a big answer. Uh, one of the things I did after we finished the book is I wrote every law school librarian in the country. And I said, look, someone, preferably you, ought to be responsible for collecting biographical information about every single nominee and every single sitting judge in your state, and we can help you provide uh, 
guidelines for how to collect data and, and so on, uh, because these are public officials uh, and they ought not, I'm not necessarily arguing in favor of accountability at every level, but there ought to be transparency about who's going on the bench. It ought to be easy for citizens to look up and find who are the justices sitting on the New York Supreme Court right this minute and where did they come from? And um, unfortunately, I got replies from exactly zero of the uh, law school librarians. So this is one of my uh, many brilliant ideas that have gone absolutely nowhere. But let me come back to Brown for a second, uh, because I think what Michael said is so important. Um, we think of the U.S. Supreme Court as a guardian of minority rights, but that's not true. That was true for only a very short period of about 15 or 20 years in American history. Overwhelmingly, the U.S. Supreme Court has supported the rights of privileged minorities, not downtrodden minorities. And overwhelmingly, they've been part of what's been called the governing coalition. The most important paper written in my lifetime is by Bob Dahl, a political scientist at Yale, published in 1957. And his point is Michael's point. That is, the era of the Warren Court was highly unusual. Usually, presidents aren't stupid. There may be some exceptions, but usually presidents aren't stupid and they know that the Supreme Court has to be controlled. And therefore, they're doing the same thing that we've found in the American states. I'll just point to the most obvious example of that. Uh, President Trump thought he was gonna lose the election so he railroaded the nomination of a judge um, on the U.S. Supreme Court in order to try to get a court favorable to his interest. That didn't work out all that well for him, but that is the, the mechanism that has been used throughout American history for the U.S. Supreme Court. And now we find that it applies to the 50 state Supreme Courts as well. I'm sorry, how did it not work out? Because he got the, the nomination through. Isn't that, uh, isn't that an example of it working out just fine for him? Well, as it turns out, I have a new book on this, but uh, Trump litigated about uh, uh, 80 different cases and won none. Now, it is true that the U.S. Supreme Court often did not rule explicitly against him, but it declined to hear the cases. Um, I don't want to go too far down this road, but the difference between the year 2000 and Bush versus Gore, in which the U.S. Supreme Court gave the presidency to Bush, and 2020, 2020, when the U.S. Supreme Court was asked to give it to Trump and did not, the difference is quite uh, stark in my view. I want to talk to both of you about the new work that you're doing. But before I do that, is there 
you were very motivated to write this book. It's very, very clear from the acknowledgments that this was not an academic exercise for either one of you, though it was rigorously done in an academic and scholarly way. What, what is there something we haven't talked about that is really important to you about the book? Um, James, let's start with you. So I would have quit on this book, except for one reason, and that's Michael J. Nelson. Michael is a fantastic collaborator. He's one of the hardest working political scientists I know. He's one of the smartest. I could go on and on, but I just want to say that if there were a way to make the alignment of the authors of this book be 50-50 or even worse from my point of view, it would be this. Michael did just a fantastic job and I value uh, his work and his friendship enormously. That was far too kind, Jim. Um, and it's it's totally reciprocated. It, we, we finally got all the data collected for this book. And I had sabbatical in fall 2020 and spring 2021. And so in March 2020, I moved to, to St. Louis so we would be in the same town so we could meet to write the book. And uh, I saw Jim in person a couple of months ago, but that was the first time since 2019 I had seen him. We wrote the entire book without being in the same room. And in the height of the COVID pandemic where you know Jim would mark up a chapter and you didn't know how long something had to sit before you could touch it. And so he would like put it on his front doorstep and then I would drive over, pick up the chapter. And um, so, I mean, it, it, the, the process was crazy, but uh, working with, with somebody who's as hardworking and kind as Jim made it, made it really worthwhile. The substantive well, is- note that I want to end on, sorry. No, no, this- no, 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 do it. No, I was just going to interrupt to just say that, you know, uh, the collaboration is, is difficult. Uh, Heath Brown, who used to host this podcast and did a mini series on collaboration where he interviewed some very famous collaborators and it, and you know, everybody does it different. So it's kind of beautiful to include just how it is that, you know, any collaboration that one is happy about usually has this kind of mutual respect. So so thanks for being as candid. And Michael, no, please say, say what you were going to say about the book. I, I think a, a good kind of final thing to say is to return to the, the little discussion we had about Dobbs, which is that as the, the Supreme Court enters into a period where it's making more consistently conservative decisions. The upshot of that is that more and more issues are going to be left to the states, which actually means that more and more of these issues, be it the outcome of the 2024 election, access to abortion, what sort of materials are taught in schools, all these big issues that are the sorts of issues that most normal non-political scientist people care about, are actually going to be decided by these state Supreme Courts. And so, you know, there's really no more important time for people to study these institutions and for for citizens to be paying attention to what they're doing. That's beautiful. James, you hinted at a book that you're finishing. I want to end with each of you just briefly telling me what, what are you working on now? What do we have to look forward to in a future podcast? Well, if I may, I'll mention two things, one quickly and the other quickly as well. Um, 
the book that I'm talking about will be published in May by the Russell Sage Foundation. And it asks the question of whether the Trump uh, period, the election, the insurrection actually did damage to American political institutions. And by that, I mean actually undermined the legitimacy of the U.S. Supreme Court, the U.S. Senate, and even the presidency. And um, as I say, that book will be published in May. Uh, the short answer is that Trump did not damage the institutions, did not. And the reason why, there, there are several components of it, but the basic reason is that institutions are resilient. They have legitimacy. And legitimacy is not something that is easily lost. It takes a lot of effort to lose it. If I may segue into the second project that we've just been mentioned several times, just today, just literally today, an article of mine was published by the American Journal of Political Science that examined the legitimacy of the US Supreme Court in the post-election era, and in particular, in the post-Dobbs era, Dobbs being the decision uh, abrogating uh, abortion rights. Uh, Michael and I have been studying the legitimacy of the Supreme Court for a long time. It virtually never changes. Dobbs is different. Dobbs, Dobbs created a big hit, a big backlash against the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, one that I believe will have very important consequences for American politics for the foreseeable future. We're in a new era, and my research shows that, and some additional work that Michael and I are doing will follow up on that. Michael, what are you, what do we have to look forward to from you? And we'll have, have a link to James's new article in the show notes. Go ahead, Michael. I have a book with Amanda Driscoll at, at Florida State and Jake Crable at West Virginia due to the publisher at the end of this month, and it's going to happen. Uh, and I, I guess you can say I'm, I'm in myth-busting mode with, with, this, with, uh, with this book, just like the inequality book. What, what we look at is the conditions under which executives face consequences from the public for ignoring courts. Um, you know, another thing that we tell all of our undergraduates is true is that the Supreme Court makes decisions and they have to be implemented. And if they don't, people will get mad. And it turns out it's a little more complicated than that. Um, and so we have data from the U.S., but also from Germany, from Poland and from Hungary. So we have some really strong courts and some really weak courts. Uh, and uh, we find that... It, the, the public's respect for courts and the rule of law is, is at the backbone of judicial power. Well, thank you both so much. I look forward to having both of those books on the podcast. Uh, and as I say, we'll have a link to the article uh, in, in the show note. I want to thank both of you, James L. Gibson and Michael J. Nelson. Their book is Judging Inequality, State Supreme Courts and the Inequality Crisis, published by the Russell Sage Foundation. Thanks so much for joining New Books and Political Science. Thank you.